0: All right, everybody, welcome to the uh, Friday QA. I am Pastor Mike Winger. My goal here is to take 20 questions from the live chat. Actually, 19. The first one I already know through secret means, I will never disclose. <laughs> um, but uh, we take your questions and then try to give you the best biblical answer I can. The first question coming in today is What are your thoughts about the serpent seed doctrine? In quotes, serpent seed doctrine, which states that the serpent mated with Eve in the Garden of Eden as the first sin and that the offspring of their union was Cain. Well, 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 okay. I've been asked about this a bunch of times, this particular question. And in the past, I kind of like didn't answer because I didn't know. I hadn't looked into it. I've never been taught this. I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with it. Right. So I did some homework in prep for this question and I'm going to give you guys the shorter, short ish (laughs) answer to it. Um, this, is, this has actually been a interpretation of scripture that's been used to justify uh, racism and the devaluing, the dehumanizing of certain people. And so here's how they do it. Here's here's how they do this, this really weird, unbiblical, and wrong thing. And if you've been taught the serpent seed doctrine, I'd encourage you, uh, don't take my word for it. Just consider the reasoning I'm going to bring here for why you might want to reconsider these things, because we can all make the mistake of hearing an interpretation that's not accurate, but believing it anyways. And so, you know, I can make that mistake too. So anyway, it goes like this. They'll say, I'm going to build a case and then I'll offer a response to it. Um, Eve's first sin was not eating fruit literally. It was eating fruit allegorically. And Eve ate allegorically in the sense of having sex with the serpent. She had sex with the serpent and the serpent Satan and then produced the first child, Cain, who was a descendant of Eve and the serpent. Um, This is pretty um interesting and the the scripture that will be used to try to support this is to say proverbs 30:20 shows us that eating fruit can be an allegory for intimacy sexual intimacy so this is the way of an adulteress she eats and wipes her mouth and says i have done no wrong okay well that 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 is an allegory eating there is an allegory for the activity of adultery That's very true. Um, Genesis 3.15 also gives us a riddle. I'm building the case for the serpent seed doctrine. In in a second, I'll respond to it. Um, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be this like ongoing battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Well, then who is the offspring of the serpent? There's got to be this this group of people, right? And then... um, They use Jesus to try to prove this as well, because in John 8, 44, the the serpent seed people that I've seen online, uh, as I looked into this, they say, it's all through the Bible. through the whole Bible, it teaches this. And they will say, Jesus talked about it. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And it goes on to talk about Satan. Um, So he tells a group of people he's talking to, hey, you're some of those serpents seed. You're some of those descendants of Eve and Satan. Then we have um, 2 Peter one four. I got two more things and then I'll respond. 2 Peter 1.4, which says, uh, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that you might, through them, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Although I should probably give you a different translation because they, they, they're going to use, they need a different translation for this. <laughs> the corruption of the world that is in the world through lust. This is New King James. King James uses the word lust as well. They're going to say, hey, it wasn't just sin that brought corruption to the world. It was sexual sin. And 2 Peter 1.4 affirms that, showing that the, the tree incident was actually about sexual sinfulness. Um, the final point I'll make, and then I'll respond to all these, is that Scripture calls Eve, quote, the mother of all living. This is a talking point from the group. Scripture calls Eve the mother of all living, but it never calls Adam the father of all living because Adam's not. Eve's the mother, but Adam's not the father of all, because there are serpents seed amongst us. Okay, this is uh let's respond. <laughs> let's respond. And I'm going to take it. And I'm going to give you scripture that irrefutably proves that this is not the case. But the reason why I walked you guys through that case is because remember, my goal here is to help us all learn to think biblically about everything. And I want you to see how it can feel like, well, wow, that was actually a pretty interesting case. Like hmm, maybe you made some good points there. I want you to feel that because that's how it feels if you're in a church that's teaching this stuff. But when you hear a response, hopefully you'll see why the fast talking verses out of context, tying scriptures together that don't work together, that that doesn't stand up when you look at the text in context carefully. So... Um, The statement here is that Eve's sin wasn't eating the fruit. This is the first claim of the five that we'll deal with, right? It was sex with the serpent. Uh, The allegory from Proverbs about eating, referring to sexual things, is then read back onto Genesis. Against this, if you look at Genesis 3, there's nothing in the passage that implies that there's an allegory here, right? You know Proverbs is an allegory because it says the adulterous woman and then goes on to describe this behavior. We also know it's extremely poetic. Proverbs is a poetry book. But in Genesis 3 we have something a little different. Let's just look at the passage because I think scripture helps us to avoid false. It it kind of like makes it harder and harder to have a bad interpretation the more you read it because it just keeps showing you why that doesn't work. And so um, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, if we're going to take eating of trees, referring to sexual intercourse in this chapter, then... Satan's asking her, can't you have sex with all the trees in the garden? That doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a nonsense interpretation. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. I mean, how many things is Eve able to, in, on this weird interpretation, is Eve now able to have sex with? I, I, forgive me, you guys. I'm being crude only because this is a, a crude interpretation I'm responding to. Um, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, you, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So we, we don't see this as an allegory at all. We, we, we see there's a tree that she can't eat. She can eat the other trees. But it seems like it's, the eating is parallel. The same way that she could eat of this other tree, the other trees she could eat of this tree. So there's something simplistic about the whole idea here. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Notice how the fruit is purely, it's separate from the serpent in the passage. The fruit is seen as something other, the serpent offers a temptation, but she doesn't actually do anything with the serpent in the passage. Okay, that again pushes against this strange interpretation of Genesis. Genesis 3.15 also talks about the two seeds. And then the question is, is well, then who's the seed? Of the serpent, right? This, it's the serpent seed doctrine, trying to find the answer, the riddle of who the mysterious seed of the serpent is. But I think the New Testament helps us understand this. First um, John three eight. I think this 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 is a relevant verse, as opposed to Proverbs, which was an irrelevant verse for that uh, for Genesis three. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Okay, so there's this this sense in which who's the seed of the serpent? the seed of the serpent is the ones who are living in the sinful lifestyle the serpent tempted Eve into right there's there's a sense in which it's behavior that identifies someone as the seed of the serpent and that behavior is sin we can see this in Ephesians as well Ephesians I believe it's three um might have been to oh I, I didn't write down the verse reference but G, G, uh, here paul in ephesians i'm not for the sake of time because it's already going to be a really long answer to the first question <laughs> um the um, unless i were done somewhere else no i don't think i did okay so the, the 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 statement in ephesians is that um that there are the sons of disobedience and that we once were among the sons of disobedience these sons of disobedience these quote children of wrath in ephesians that we, that we read about that they are of the same kind of thing they're part of this rebellious against god kind of group of people what we're seeing here though is that there isn't this sort of state in the in the in the in the world where there's these sons of the of the of the seed seed of the serpent <laughs> who can't be saved and then there's the pure seed who can rather everyone apart from christ ends up becoming following their father the devil so to speak and anyone who gets saved moves and is born again and is adopted into the family of god and has a new father in heaven so we're all that way until we get saved. Um, the proof about Jesus is in John 8, where he identifies a group of people as seed of the serpent. And for the, the serpent seed doctrine to hold, they have to be literal descendants from Cain, who has biologically, according to them, has the serpent as his dad. Um, okay, so you're your father, the devil. Okay, that, that's the statement there. But notice how Jesus is having a very interesting banter in John 8. They say we're children of Abraham. He goes, Nah, you're you're of your father the devil. They go, No, 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 our father is God. We're our father is God, and th- that's what they respond with. And finally, Jesus then makes it clear he doesn't mean to imply, and this is important, this is the key. He doesn't mean to imply their physical descendants from someone other than Abraham. That uh, that would be this Cain thing. He's not saying that, because in um, verse fifty six, let me scroll down there. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. So Jesus affirms that they're of Abrahamic physical descent, but he denies that Abraham is their father in another sense. That is a spiritual sense. They're not following the faith of Abraham. And so they're not children of Abraham in that sense. This is super consistent with Galatians chapter three, verses seven through nine. Paul says, therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This is like true sons or full sons, right? And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. These are not from Abraham physically. Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. There's a uh, spiritual association with Abraham through faith. That's what's being talked about here. It's not a physical thing. And I'll add um, Revelation well, here, let me give you guys a few verses that absolutely prove this is not the case. Okay, so Revelation 5.9. On the serpent seed doctrine, this verse seems impossible. Um, they sang a new song. These are redeemed people, right? And notice where they're redeemed from. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, this is about Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Who did he redeem? Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They've been redeemed from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Every people group has someone saved. And even if you say, well, there could be some measure of hyperbole here, right? Um, which which I'm open to that possibility. But, but you, what you can't say is there are these massive groups of people descended from Cain who are apostate or, or you know, permanently banned from, from heaven. They're seeds of the serpent, so to speak. Like this doesn't work with the passage at all. But probably the best verse to go to is Genesis 4, one. Um, this would be the first one I go to. If I had one minute to respond to someone who believed the serpent seed doctrine, this is the one verse I would go to, right? It says, now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. And she, and she said, I, I've, I've acquired a man from the Lord, which is what Cain's name means, like a, to acquire, right? Then she bore again and this time his brother Abel. Now on the serpent seed doctrine, Cain and Abel come from two different dads, but it's abundantly clear in Genesis four that Adam is, there's a process. He knew his wife, Eve, that is, um, a, a Hebrew euphemism new for like, they, they were together physically in, physically intimate. He knew his wife. That's what it means. No debate about that. Right. The result of him knowing his wife of them being together intimately is she conceived. Right. And then she bears Cain. And then she bore again. Notice the part that it doesn't repeat. It doesn't repeat that Adam knew his wife again and she conceived again because they're, what, it, what it means is they're parallel constructs, right? Verse one and verse two, it's saying that Cain and Abel both come from the same process. Adam sleeping with his wife, she conceives. Here comes Cain, then comes Abel. They have the same dad. Is this really very complicated? No. How does a doctrine like the serpent seed doctrine like go so dominantly in certain church groups, it's because what you have, and I'm, I'm, forgive me, you guys, this is just my honest observation. What you have in some groups is loud, boisterous preaching versus speedily moved through where the authority, the, the, the felt authority of the teacher is what's really driving things and not the clear understanding of scripture. And I, I fear that that's kind of what's going on there. Um, in Acts seventeen I'll give you one last verse, and then we're going to go to all your guys' questions from the live chat. It says that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. One blood, every nation. We all descend through Adam. This is, this is the teaching of Scripture, right? That we all come from the same blood, from the same source, ultimately. Now, if the Father's Satan, you cannot say that all nations of the earth when many of them have a satanic father ultimately, that they have the same blood, right? You can't say that. That is certainly not what the biblical authors would be thinking. This is just a doctrine that's been used to promote racism. And I mean, it totally dehumanizes because you're not fully human. You're, you you have ultimately the worst uh, genetic history you can imagine. You are cursed and you're a curse and you're the one Jesus is fighting against and we're supposed to fight against you. You see how this... this <sighs> It's unbiblical, and it's it's immoral, and it's other stuff. But we'll go to the next question. Hopefully, that answers, for those who want to know about the serpent seed doctrine, there's the short version. There's more you can get into. Irenaeus wrote against this, like, a long, long time ago as well. But um, question number two. Jordan Filar says, How do you respond to 1 Samuel 15, 3, that includes in the command, child and infant? It doesn't ruin my trust in God's goodness, but it is hard to understand or explain any insight you have is appreciated. All right. This is a very difficult uh, passage to talk about. So for Samuel 15, three, let me back up a little bit. Just read a, little, a couple verses before it. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will, pun- I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Um, so th- there's there's basically two different roads I've seen people go down. Um, I'll, I'll offer one background detail on this, and then I'll offer two different sort of approaches people have, and then maybe some uh, pastoral insights that you might be helpful for you. Um, the background is this. Uh, these, these, the, the number of people, the, the size of the groups and the types of places they were attacking were more military focused. This seems to be the case from, from the studying I've done on it, that these are not what you're thinking of as these big, like populous cities or something like that, but rather smaller military outposts. Um, we don't know. So, okay. Then there's the two roads people go down that that's the background there. Um, one road is to say, Hey, um, this is, this is what, uh, Paul Copan does, I believe. And he talks about this in his book. I think it's called, Has God a Moral Monster? Worth looking at. I'm a little on the fence, not because I think he's wrong, but because some of the issues I haven't chased down enough to know if that's right or not. Um, So I just, you know, sometimes you just, you hold things and you juggle them for a while as you're working through them. And um, so his view is, as I understand it, um, when the, this this is destruction language that is similar to modern destruction language. Like when you say, you i i annihilated them i decimated them okay well technically the word decimate means to like kill 10 percent of a group of people and and so if like we say well there's the sports team decimated that sports team we we everybody knows that's not what it means but maybe people hundreds of years later would be like well that's what the word means right they they might misunderstand and so um the case that paul copan tries to build is that this is hyperbolic language that doesn't mean what you think it means. And even though it says kill both man and uh, woman, infant, and nursing child, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkey, it doesn't literally mean that. Um, I'm like I said, I'm on the fence on that view. That's a possibility. That's a possibility. Um, Now there's another approach, and I'm gonna give. I'll just call this my approach for the moment, which is, um, I think that it does seem that we're probably less people and less less women, or potentially babies, right? Or are even animals than what we would think of there, especially being that it was more of a military outpost. But there, but it you know I, I'm I'm sensitive to the idea that there could have been really women and infants at this location, and then it would seem on face value that then there's a command to kill them. Um, there's two sides to this coin. One side, as I answer, try to answer briefly, and and I I hesitate and I stutter a little bit because I'm deeply aware of you, not of me, not of my own moral concern or struggle over these issues, but of yours. And I fear that like me answering just not perfectly, not perfectly right is going to be like the thing where someone checks the box and goes, fine, I'm out of here. I hate Christianity. I hate the Bible, that kind of thing. And so my, my fear is that by stumbling over a word or by forgetting to say something perfectly that you're just going to like bail. And that's a concern. That's a concern for you. I don't think you have a reason to do that. I don't think you have a legitimate reason to do that i i don't honestly feel that there's some moral problem here i think it's a challenge but not a problem maybe that's a weird term to use i think it's difficult for us but i think ultimately here's here's a moral truth i believe god has sovereign right over the lives of humans to kill and to make alive now this is a big statement but don't get me wrong God has, not you have, not I have. This is why when somebody does something wrong, we would sometimes hear people say, well, who do you think you are, God? Right, like, or doctors that have like a God complex, like they have some right to do this or that to a person experimentally. And we would say, yeah, who do you think you are, God? I'm, I'm just saying like, God is God. And he does have a right to judge mankind. Every instance of judgment, in addition to that, every instance of, of judgment where I see children being hurt is at least potentially, right? Like this passage seems to potentially indicate. I see it as a corporate judgment. And so my understanding is that their <clears throat> suffering is an overflow. It, it's a it's a type of collateral damage because God is removing a culture that is toxic, spiritually toxic to the people of, of God who he's setting up Israel, who will be the people who bring forth the Messiah. So this is like a a, a large judgment. I also believe that these infants nursing children went to heaven. Because I'm, and I've done a lot of work on this, right? I've, I've got videos on this topic, on what happens to babies when they die. And I'm confident that they went to be with the Lord. So then I see this as a judgment on their culture, as a temporary suffering they went through as individuals, but it wasn't directed at them, but but they suffered because of their culture. And then they were ushered into the presence of God. So it was it was something where if you had been by yourself, infant, this wouldn't happen, but because of a collateral situation. This happens in war. Um, people have to make decisions. Do we bomb that building? There's there's also this other person that may be there, or maybe we know is there. But if we don't take this opportunity, this might happen or that might happen. These are challenging just things to work through. So, is that good enough for you? Um, maybe it's not. Maybe you're listening to this and you're like, you know, I believe in God. I, I believe in the Bible, but I just I just that doesn't sit well with me, Mike. Then I'm going to suggest this: let it not sit well and choose to trust God. I think that's a completely fair answer right i don't understand this but i will throw back to this one possibility that maybe this is bigger than me and maybe i'm trying to judge god's actions with my limited knowledge with my limited understanding and with my current perspective and so i'll just give him the benefit of the doubt because god is worthy that would be i guess the final thing i would suggest there yeah so um, i hope that some of those insights help and um We'll move on to the next question. If not, take it as my failing, not a failing of the Lord. David Tagawa says, Hi, Mike. What are the lessons we all can learn from Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill? Thank you and uh, pray that God will continue to bless you and your ministry. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate your prayers. Um, so just to bring everybody up to speed. Okay, so Mark Driscoll was a very well-known and very successful pastor and um, media person, right? A Christian leader and um things went really sour in his church and things went really downhill and he made a lot of mistakes and then now that was years ago then now there's a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that recounts is in, i guess in a lot of detail all the like sort of um soap opera elements that led up to and they're trying to draw lessons for the church um now having said all that I know this is a super popular podcast I, I also have not watched a single episode or listened to a single one of them. (laughs) I find myself, I'm being, this is just me speaking personally. I'm not trying to make a judgment about it. Um, I find myself totally uninterested. I, um, I just don't care. I don't care. I don't care to sit and go with a microscope over what went on internally in a local church that had issues. Um, I just don't care. Now, there, there are times when it matters. Like I did that video on Ravi Zacharias, but I hated that too, okay? And, and I felt like it needed to be done. I thought it had to be done. I explained in the video why I thought it had to be done because he had been so widely and publicly endorsed. Well, I thought Mark Driscoll, whatever mistakes he's made, I haven't looked into it to be honest in detail either. Um, I, it just doesn't seem like it's something I need to. So I haven't looked into it. What, what's my encouragement? Um, knowing so little about the podcast itself, I would say, um, Jesus's rule of make, about getting the plank out of our eye before we look to pull the speck out of someone else's eye is very important here. So as you're analyzing and evaluating somebody else's ministry, as you're looking at the, 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 the rise and fall of Mars Hill, right? As you're looking at that, you need to first examine yourself and just make sure I'm not feeding my own negative attitudes towards certain people, towards certain kinds of institutions, towards the church in general, towards pastors in general. I'm not feeding that right. Like I that just would be a potential danger that I would encourage people to watch out for, um, and to realize that um, I don't know at all about the true accuracy of the people making the podcast. A well-produced podcast means it's they're going to be confronted with opportunities to exaggerate, misrepresent, leave out certain details, and how how they handle that will be up to them. But obviously, if they do it, um, if they the news has learned this long ago. If you misrepresent the story, you get a lot more people to buy the paper. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying there's at least a potential problem there to be aware of. Yeah, God give you wisdom. Maria Alejandra Alvarez says, should a Christian use Christian dating apps? I don't see anything wrong with meeting people through these apps, but when I try to use them, I feel guilty. Does the Bible guide us somehow with this? Maria, I okay, I'll speak from a personal experience here a little bit. Um, I felt years ago like that I couldn't even do anything intentionally. Now this is nobody's fault, but mine. Okay. I'm not blaming other people. This isn't like some big issue with like, whatever. Um, but I felt like I I shouldn't do anything to pursue getting to know a girl, like, or like going to an event, hoping to meet a girl who'd be a Christian girl, like that, that would be like weird or wrong. Um, and I think I was mistaken. I think I was mistaken. Um, so now God met me there because you know, I met my wife um, without having to do any of that stuff and we're very happily married. And I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's been wonderful. But that being said, the more I've thought about this, and I've thought about this a lot over the years about like, what is proper dating? What is like the boundaries we have as Christians? And I just don't see anything wrong with a Christian going to an event with the express intention of, I'm going to try to meet someone who, potentially will be my husband or, or wife in the future, unless they're stepping into carnality or, but assuming those things are not happening, right? I just can't think of anything wrong with it. I, I, what about d- a dating app? Like, well, it depends on how you do it, not whether you do it, right? Like if I'm looking for hookups, that's sinful. If I'm looking for, um, you know, someone who's, who would be a good match for a future spouse, how is that sinful? I don't see how that's sinful, right? Abraham sent his, people will say like, well, um here's let me give you an example uh, from scripture um abraham wanted his son isaac to have a wife from their original homeland right not from the canaanites but from their from their homeland and so he sends off his servant eliezer and eliezer goes and we we get the whole story about how he brings back Mm -hmm. rebecca and some have preached like well look you know here's here's isaac he does nothing He just sits in a field. He's like meditating in a field. And there comes Rebecca. Guys, your job is just to meditate on the Lord. You're not really to seek anybody. And there's, okay, there's elements of truth in that. But let's back up a little bit and let's, let's show what really happened. His dad literally arranged his marriage for him pursuing a good mate, sending a, what was meant to be a wise servant to find someone who seemed like they'd be a good mate. He tested her with the whole drinking camels and all this story, if you guys aren't familiar with it, to see if she seemed like she had a good character. Brought her back, right? They have a certain shared culture and then they get married. This was an arranged marriage, right? This wasn't like him, like all I was doing was worshiping and then I got like a word from God, marry her. Um, and that's not what happened here. So I'm, I'm totally, I don't think you should feel guilty for this unless you're doing it in a bad manner. That's my opinion about it. Um, I'm I'm also very skeptical about how helpful these apps are. But I do know some people who who got who met and got married through Christian like you know couples apps of some kind, right? And are very happy and it was a good thing for them. So I'm totally open. I don't think they should be ashamed of that. Those are my thoughts. Now, back in the day, I would have been very uncomfortable with it, but I couldn't have told you why. And maybe that's how you feel. I feel uncomfortable, but I don't know why. Well, you know, don't violate your conscience, but if you can ease that conscience there and realize, hey, there, you know, I could be seeking a godly relationship with a godly person and it's hard to find somebody around here. So, you know, Abraham sent someone all the way to a a homeland to find somebody. You could probably go on an app, I guess. All right. Number five, this is I love Wayne's world who says, I believe I'm trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection for salvation, but I have OCD and can't control my thoughts. So how do I know if I'm really trusting or just agreeing with the facts intellectually? Um, I can't speak to some of what you're talking about when you say I have OCD and can't control my thoughts. But I will speak to at least how how I think this works for me or for others I've talked to. And I, I think that this is true and I think it's biblical. I think I can support it with scripture. The basic idea is this. Having thoughts is not the same as choosing beliefs. That's kind of my central idea here. And somebody I think who has uh, mental challenges like OCD or schizophrenia or something like that, they're going to have a a much stronger challenge with having thoughts. And so how much more important it will be for them to know the difference between that and choosing beliefs. And the biblical example of this is the... um, the man who says to Jesus, um, I believe Lord help my unbelief. And I've talked about this somewhat recently, so I won't go through the whole story, but the man needs his son to be healed. Jesus says, Hey, if you believe I can do that. And the man says, I believe help my unbelief. So he had unbelief literally mixed in with his belief. He had both. And so maybe your question is kind of like, I believe, but I also have unbelief kind of like thoughts mixed in there. And I don't know what's Is that enough? Like, am I saved with this? And my answer is yes. Like that's exactly what the example we have in scripture, the one example I see where we have this sort of thing, belief mixed with some kind of unbelief. But the man said, I believe that is my choice. This is where I say making a choice versus your thoughts. His choice was, I believe. His thoughts were help me with my unbelief. So you have thoughts and you have a choice. I choose to continue trusting you. Yeah, but do you feel like you believe do you feel like you're confident well not exactly all the time though. No, but i choose to trust okay well that's that's good enough that's good enough i think absolutely that that's good enough um so i i hope that you find that helpful i think that one scriptural example is is a good a good thing to maybe help you navigate that to not become worried that a doubtful thought equals unbelief um as a choice. It, does, it just doesn't. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Jaden Johnston says, I'm a high school teacher at a school that's heavily influenced by culture and broken homes. They lack respect and hate following rules. How can I reach these students that appear far from God? Um, that That's a big question, Jaden. And, and I think that what I would recommend above all else is if you could find other Christian teachers who teach I'm assuming you're in a public school setting, who teach in public schools and have navigated this right. Like they've they've tried, they've they've figured out ways to um, put their faith on display for the kids to build healthy relationships with the kids. I find that um, um, in my own experience doing youth ministry that um, when you when you when you give kids no nonsense, but not because you're mean, right? But there's just there's just no. I'm not going to play games with you, but underneath all that is, but I'm steadfastly care about you. Like when both of those things are real. And so in some of these cases, the the situation for the home life, a lot of the students seems to be for broken homes. Um, When, when someone thinks I've done something wrong, they stop caring about me for a while. But when you can break that and show them that even though I'm like giving you detention, even though I'm calling you out, like I care about you they're turn that turn that can turn into an open door for a greater relationship with that person with that student. So <clears throat> my thought is um um that you show them love and care and respect but no nonsense where the the rules uh, one of the things that's healthy for students I think for humans, <laughs> children, it seems is consistent and simple rules. Right, you don't have a thousand rules, you have just this many rules, right? And there and there's and you hold them consistently. You're not inconsistent, you know. That makes you a stable person, a reliable person. Some of the kids are still going to despise you for it, um, but it will build the opportunity for something better to happen there. Um, yeah, I, I hope that that partly helps. Obviously, you know your conversations with the students, you talking to them about their lives, um, creating a safe environment. All those things are very helpful. Is, other than that, I don't know what advice I would give to a school teacher about how to reach the kids beyond that. I'm sure there's a lot you could do, but I would encourage you to look for other school teachers who've worked through that stuff as well. Okay, our next um, question comes in from, there it is, number seven. Power Word, who says, if the word seraphim derives from the same Hebrew root word for snake, is it really a stretch to say that Lucifer, who is a seraphim in the Garden of Eden, could have appeared reptilian? Okay, um, power word. I'm not sure, and I, I I don't mean anything more than that than that I'm not sure. I'm not sure that your summary of the um the passage, the meaning of the of the Hebrew is correct, and I doubt I'd have the time to work into it. I I know that with the word that's translated serpent, we do have that that word. There's a connection to the, the word seraphim. There is a real connection there, and um, it can mean like a shining one, okay? And I know that uh, say, Michael Heiser is one scholar who really leans on this, and he says, look, there is an intention in Genesis 1, or in Genesis uh, 3, to give, uh, to give the, the implication that this serpent is not a normal beast. And so <clears throat> I can give you guys a couple of those points just so you can understand them. I'm not saying he's right. I don't know uh, on this issue. This is one of those issues I'm on the fence on. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. Okay, well, you know, he's more cunning, right, than any beast that God has made. Okay, well, this is a way of setting, you know, upon, I think this is Heiser's perspective, you know, and you could even just say it's someone's perspective who has the view that you're talking about, that this sets the serpent apart. There's something different about this creature. Okay, he's he's unique. The next thing is, he says to the woman, okay, well, they know animals don't talk. There's something very weird about the serpent. The serpent's not natural. There's not normal. There's something supernatural going on. Then you add to that that the word serpent itself can have a connection to um, this idea of the shining one, okay? Or um, the seraphim. And let me let me see if I can give you guys um, a bit more details. So, nahash is the word for serpent. That's going to be too small for anyone to read. So, let me... Um, it's used 31 times in the Hebrew Bible. It's used in Genesis there. We have it. Oh, man, I just don't have the time. I need like at least 10 minutes to sit and just look at all this kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Heiser's view is going to be that it, it also connects to the idea of the shining one that you have. Um, I don't know that it's the same actual root, though. That's where I would push back a little bit. I, I want to double check that fact. Same root as seraphim? Um, maybe it is. I, I just don't remember. And I don't have the time to look into it at the moment. So, um, Revelation talks about how Satan is that serpent of old. That great serpent of old. And in the passage, he's viewed as a dragon. And and so, what I'm suggesting here is there is at least some room. And this is why this view seems at least potential to have, to have potential to me. There seem to be multiple points where the serpent is like something weird's going on there, right? It talks, right? It gets um, it gets a different description, cunning, more cunning than any beast of the field or something different and unique about it. Revelation talks about the, him being the serpent of old, Satan being that serpent of old in a passage that refers to him uh, overall in a larger passage there as, a, as like a dragon. And so we're getting the idea that there's more going on here than a physical serpent. But there seems to be some connection to a snake because the curse is on your, on your on the ground you'll go on your belly, eating the dust of the earth. So there seems to be some connection there. Um, what it is, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, we have all of our 20 questions for today, but I'm going to go to number eight. And this is from Katar Cam, who says, I just moved to a new city and I work every Sunday. How do I find a church family if I work every Sunday? Um go Sunday night, go Saturday night, go Friday night, go Wednesday night or Thursday. I I would find a church that has an opportunity to fellowship. I know at least in my area, there's many opportunities to fellowship other at other times, right? There's, and it may not be the main Sunday gathering, but you're still involved. You're still at least doing something. And, um, yeah, I would, I would, I would do that. At least that's a start. You you could try to move your work schedule around at some point. So you don't have to do that, but you there's, you know, if you go to lots of churches, you'll see there's so much going on, KTAR can, there's so much going on throughout the week and different ministries and activities and things, Bible studies and worship, and you can still be very involved. I don't think that um, not going Sunday means you can't be involved in a fellowship. So th- that's my thoughts. I-, I hope it helps you out. Here's an anonymous question. It says, I'm a recent MDiv grad who gets questions from friends and family about the Bible. I do a study and answer them and they respond with, that's what i thought (laughs) any encouragement to keep trying (laughs) well um i get you man um uh here's yeah here'd be my encouragement for you um sometimes people respond in trivial ways to massive amounts of labor that you've done um I get it all the time. <laughs> so, but I but I'm not complaining. I also get tons of people who are very grateful and think far too highly of me anyways. So, I'm not trying to complain. But but sometimes that'll happen, right? And you've done a lot of work and you're not receiving sort of the gratitude. And okay, this is going to be a really hard pill to swallow, but there's a part of this where it's like you're growing, your character is growing when you learn to labor, serve, do good for others and then have them an under-response, an under-appreciative response. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it will grow your character because the ability to labor in obscurity <laughs> without thankfulness is a, is a massive character trait that we, we don't want to labor that way, but we want to have the character trait at least to be able to. So there's an element of that that's there. Another part of it is this. <clears throat> the work you're doing now to help others to, to dig and get to answer their questions, even if they only get this much of what you say, you, having dug and got solid answers, you are, you, are, you are adding to your arsenal of knowledge that you can then bless many other people. So while you may have had a mild impact in the person who asked the question and goes, yeah, I thought that, you are being equipped with thorough and deep answers to questions for many people for the future. I mean, <clears throat> I used to do this all the time where I would, I would give people answers to questions and I would, I would before my online ministry was anything, and it was similar, right? But so many times, years down the road, someone asked me a question, and it's like burning in their heart, and they need to know a good answer, and they really need someone who's thought about it. And because I didn't trivialize my answers years ago, I hopefully have a good answer now. And I'm just suggesting that there's a long-term benefit in your ability to serve others in that you labor and you get deep answers so you can help people out. And, and that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good and wonderful thing. Another side of it is this, and this is the more pr- another practical side. You might be learning that some of your study is um, you're studying it maybe because you're interested in it, but it wasn't really relevant to the person or the question. And I, I mean, I'm just saying this might happen some of the time since you're asking my thoughts. Some of the time, um, we'll put it this way. <laughs> I would study... And I would spend like four hours on a rabbit trail of something I think is really important. And then I would look at my study that I'm going to teach and go, this doesn't really fit the study. It's not really relevant. It's not really going to help them. And so then I would just set it aside. And I'm, I'm studying a bunch of stuff I'm not even teaching. And I found that after a while, I just realized I'm equipping myself there. But when I answer them, I'll cut out a lot of those details because it's not for them. I, I hope you find that useful. <clears throat> Felicia... Um, Sio Siala says, do you think it's a sin to watch movies and shows that make inappropriate jokes or have some language, or is it only a sin when we personally make crude jokes and use that language? You're a blessing. Um, Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Felicia. Um, This is an issue where I... I hesitate to give an answer, not because I'm <clears throat> um, embarrassed or afraid of my positions or worried about what people will say about me. Um, the The reason I hesitate is because some areas they feel like it feels to me like we have a lot of Christians pushing their convictions on everyone else. And there's a there's room in Scripture for certain topics where you say, I I feel strongly, but I'm just going to do that between me and the Lord. I'm gonna I'm gonna live that way, but I'm not gonna make a big point of telling everyone they have to do that too. And I think on some of this stuff that 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 is a healthy place for us to be. So the debate in the early church, one of the issues was food sacrifice to idols. You go to the marketplace and you go to buy food and you're like, I need some meat. And this meat is being bought from an idolater who, when they prepared and they got the meat and butchered it and everything, they offered it to idols. So in their mind is associated with idolatry. And the, the Christians are like, can we eat meat? That's been, I didn't offer it to the idol, but it has been offered to idols. Like, can I eat that meat? And so Paul's answer is yes, but <laughs> <And clears throat> Romans 14 talks about this. <clears throat> Pardon me. First Corinthians talks about this. The answer is yes, but, and and my summary of his answer is this. Yes, technically you can, right? Because you are not partaking of any sin while you do that. You're not participating, but If it stumbles the person you're buying it from, if it stumbles the person you're eating it in front of, if it stumbles some other Christian, then just don't do it around them. Keep it between yourself and the Lord. And if you feel stumbled, if you feel guilty, even knowing that I've told you that it's clean, if you feel bad eating this meat, don't eat the meat because your conscience before God is valuable. So don't violate that conscience. Now, I'm not saying that um, movies that, say, have coarse humor are are permissible for all Christians the way that Paul said eating of sacri- food sacrificed to idols are permissible. But what I am going to suggest is there's enough gray in there that I'm not certain of that I'm going to just leave it to the, to my brothers and sisters and leave it to your conscience. Don't don't violate your conscience. You feel, I don't feel comfortable with that. Don't violate your conscience. Now, inevitably there's, there's plenty of Christians who have zero conscience about anything. They would watch naked people on screens and be like, I don't feel guilty. I've, I've seen it before. And it's like, well, you obviously have a damaged conscience. Okay. But I'm, but you didn't ask about those things, right? You, you said, let me read the question again for everybody to be on the same page. Do you think it's a sin to watch movies and shows that make inappropriate jokes or have some language? In other words, there's a whole movie and somewhere in there is some degree of inappropriate humor. Oh, I didn't like that joke or some language. Like, oh, I wish they hadn't said that. I'm going to leave that to my brothers and sisters and I'm not going to push it push my views on them. Just say, don't violate your conscience. Um, Yeah, there's my current thinking on that. I I, I hope it helps you think about it too. The awesome edge. Oh, two says I am not a Calvinist, but I'm having a very hard time finding a non-Calvinist interpretation on acts 1348. I would really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for all the hard work you do. Okay, let's go to Acts thirteen forty eight, And you might think I'm a Calvinist, but I'm not. Okay. Acts thirteen forty eight is an evangelism passage. And um, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This fits super well with Calvinist theology because they're like, only those who are appointed and elected are going to believe. Um, so here's where, and I've, I've talked about this somewhere else in, in, in one of my videos, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's like 600 videos now. Um, but, but this happens a lot where there's a verse that looks like, especially if you're, if you're talking about Calvinism with someone and then they bring this verse up, then you're like, wow, that just looks like a proved Calvinism. Where if you're thinking about Calvinism, it seems like it's proving it. But in my opinion, it has very little force in that regard. Um, because I don't already hold those Calvinist views, and I'm not already thinking about them, I'm thinking Acts thirteen forty eight means that right God has appointed people to eternal life, and they believe. The Calvinist is thinking the entire formula for salvation is you're appointed, and you believe. And that that excludes things like I am going to have faith. By a free decision of my own. I just think it doesn't exclude that. So I would affirm this is about election, that <clears throat> God doesn't, and my view of election. So some non Calvinists, their view of election, forgive me if I'm getting a little into the theological weeds here, guys, um, but a lot of you enjoy that. <laughs> so um, some non Calvinists, they think that election is only corporate. God just elects a certain kind of people, like elects those who, who believe. Okay, that is election. Election is just sort of selecting whoever will believe in Christ. Um, there's another sense of election that in, involves individuals, not just corporate election, but individual election. I lean that way, which is more often the Calvinist position. But I don't think that, that, that leaning that way equals Calvinism. So I guess my, my point is, um, I, I'm, I'm making some my Calvinist friends who I love you guys, and you love me, okay? We're brothers and sisters in Christ you're probably punching the ceiling a little bit because you're like, Mike, you're like looking at it, but you're not seeing it. But I think rather I'm looking at it, but I'm only seeing it. You're looking at it. You're seeing it plus this and that and that. And what I see is God elects and appoints to eternal life, right? All the people who believe and all the people who believe are appointed to eternal life. And I see no conflict there. I still think there are statements in scripture that affirm that man has a free will decision that they make. And I don't see any conflict. That's the important part. I just don't see any conflict there. Man chooses to accept or reject the gospel. And God has, you know, appointed them to eternal life when they, when they believe you are both elect and you have chosen Christ. I just don't see a conflict there. So the awesome edge, um, my, my point is that I don't and never have, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not a Calvinist. Um, Never have, while well, I love Calvinists and actually really appreciate them deeply, but I've never felt the pressure to become a Calvinist because I've never thought election and man's free will are fundamentally in conflict. I think that they can sit together perfectly fine. And um, we could talk more about how that works, but um, yeah. So this verse is one reason why to summarize. I affirm individual election, not just corporate and yet I feel no compulsion to become Calvinist because I don't think it rules out a free choice to believe. <clears throat> Number 12, um, Mr. Shadowy One has, or yeah, Shadowy One, how are some biblical teachings like hair length considered cultural and specific only to ancient times when other things apply even today like homosexuality? Um, well, let, let, me, let me respond to this by showing that if we don't, if, it, the, the opposite view would be weird, um, would be obviously problematic. (laughs) So if we think either everything in the Bible is cultural and doesn't apply or nothing in the Bible is cultural and it all applies today perfectly, then we are the ones who are like, we're coming to the scripture and we're putting on these lenses that, that, that make everything that's colorful into just black and white. And we can't see that when god tells uh, abraham right like go <clears throat> leave out of the out of the land of egypt and go to the land of israel and god promises israel these blessings and he gives them the law and it's like if you can't see that we're as christians today not under that law then that's going to be a problem right but if you also can't see that like say honoring god's name which is part of the law transcends that rule and applies to us today as well then i just think you're you've you've gotten a very wooden almost, um, naive approach to scripture at that point. So my pushback would be, you have to see certain things in scripture as cultural and some things as not. And the real question isn't, how are we allowed to say that's cultural and that's not? The real question is, can I show that there are reasons in scripture why this issue is cultural and that one is not? Do do you you get this? a different question. It's a new question now. Can I demonstrate that this issue transcends culture and this one's culturally bound? That to me is pretty significant, and um, um, the uh, the 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 example of say hair length. Okay, I do think that that's a cultural thing, but there's a principle in the same, and I'll teach through this sometime in the future. Here, <laughs> um, the principle that's being taught there is not culturally bound, and the hair length was the incidental cultural expression, but the principle is not. Homosexuality was not a culturally bound thing at all. Um, it And it's driven from the nature of mankind the created order. It's forbidden to Jews and to Gentiles in the old Testament and the new Testament and the new Testament to the, to the Christians, um, as you know, after the time of Christ, as well as the, 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 not just the Jews. It's not even just under the law. Like God judges the old, um, non Jewish nations for these acts. So that seems unbound culturally. So do you get what I'm saying? Is it's just like, you have, we have to ask more questions, There's strong reasons to think some things are culturally bound and other things are not. Um, And we we can, you know, just read the passage and look for it to see that. I I hope that helps. Anonymous question number 13 we have, should a husband refuse to go to a hyper charismatic church that his wife wants to attend and rather attend his own church that emphasizes the Bible? Well, I fear that life is too complicated to answer a question like this with a yes or no. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, it's just, you know, life is there's, let me, let me, forgive me for doing this anonymous question. Forgive me for doing this, but I'm going to use your, your question as an example of the kind of way of getting advice that I feel can be a little bit dangerous. Um, while I don't think you're trying to load your question at all. Right, because you didn't you didn't load all this extra back. You just said, "Hey, should a husband refuse to go to a hyper charismatic church that his wife wants to attend rather than his own church that emphasizes the Bible?" Um, But there's so many more details, right? Um, It's hyper charismatic, okay? But where's the theology? How's the theology? How is this impacting your marriage? What is the impact on your kids? Um, Where where are the churches located? Are there other factors that are in? There's just life is complicated, and I would dig into all those issues. I um I would I would hope that they could go together to a church, but I realize that people get weird and, and things get torn. So yeah, I I could do you harm by just giving you a flat answer here. Yeah, may God give you wisdom, may God guide and direct you, um, whether this is you or someone you know, and help you know what what the 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 thing to do. If you're the husband, then I would say. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And think about everything you do right now through the lens of loving self-sacrificially her. If you're the wife, then I would encourage you to read Ephesians 5 and see how it talks about the wives showing respect and yielding to their husbands. And this may be one of those issues to do that. So, um, yeah, God help you. Number 14. Eden Nicole says, What does being unequally yoked look like? Um unequally yoked. Let's just go to the passage real quick here. So second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness and what accord has Christ with Belial or what part has a believer with an unbeliever and what agreement has the temple of God with idols for you are the temple of the living God. Um, so the unequally yoked in this passage is clearly talking about unbelievers. It's about the joining of a believer with an unbeliever in some fashion, right? We can we can conservatively say that for sure. Um, unequally yoked is not talking about believers and, un, and believers. Hey, you're two believers and you're unequally yoked. This is where we take a biblical term and we use it. It's not that there's no value in finding believers that are, have similar values and views on things, um, but we're using a biblical term in an unbiblical way, which harms our ability to know what scripture says. It's, it's like a little pet peeve of mine to not use Bible terms, terms the Bible uses in specific ways to not use them in different ways than that. Cause it's a way of distorting our understanding of scripture. I feel, um, so don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's, that's the focus unbelievers. Um, I've had some people say, well, this is about business relationships it's not about marriage. Uh, and th- this came from someone who, who I know and love who was gonna marry a Muslim. And I, I said, well, don't be unequally yoked. <laughs> I mean, if there's anything that yokes, it's marriage. The two of you are connected permanently. Um, and so that would seem to be a big point there. Um, first, it's in the first Corinthians seven, Paul talks about this as well. He says that uh, basically single or, or widowed Christians are able to free to marry anyone they want in the Lord, in the Lord. And so the forbidding of getting married to a non-believer is a big deal as a Christian. Now, that being said, if you're already married, even if you wrongly married a non-believer, you're to make it work. You're to stay with them. You're not to just divorce them. Marriage is sacred. And it's like, you shouldn't have done that, but now I want to support you 100% in it. And I want you to see you having as successful a marriage as possible. But yeah, this is, um, it would apply, it seems directly to marriage and it could apply to any other weird situation in life where you're sort of joining yourself in a way that overlaps your um, that that combines light and darkness, you're not just partnering in any fashion, but you're partnering in a fashion that's going to bring compromise to your spiritual life with that with that unbeliever. So, yeah. Number fifteen, Yevichin J says. Um, could you explain why the seven mountain mandate is wrong theology? It's so popular. And on the surface, it seems like such a good idea. Um, so as I understand it, the seven mountain mandate is more of a, a Pentecostal thing. And I don't say that as a, as a, as a negative term, I'm not saying Pentecostal, like it's a dirty word, but, but amongst more Pentecostal groups. Um, and the view is that they can sort of divide the world into seven categories they call seven mountains and so you have like arts and um i don't know science and you have you have like these different sort of cultural categories or you might say powers of centers of influence for a culture and these are called like seven mountains and the mandate is that we're going to get christians into the higher Echelons of each of those categories, right? So into the arts and into like industry and into politics and uh, and, and government, ruling government and stuff like that. So, um, is it wrong theology? Well, let me just say this: it's not right theology. Um, <laughs> meaning that not that not that it's a bad thing. It's it's extra biblical. Like this is there's nothing in scripture that says this to my knowledge. There's nowhere. In scripture that says that we need to get Christians into the top of each of these sort of like sectors. I don't see that mandate in scripture. So this mandate, if we're saying it's coming from God, we're saying it based purely on extra biblical things. We should acknowledge that. So is it wrong theology? What it is, is it's a strong focus on an idea that doesn't seem like it comes from scripture. Um, It could potentially be problematic in that it would cause a church to focus too much on... Powerful people. Uh, potentially, this is a problem, right? The early church didn't care, and they weren't supposed to care about how wise and powerful and authoritative you were, and how much you could integrate yourself into the higher echelons of this particular mountain. It, it just didn't matter, because you know God has hidden these things from the from the wise of this world and revealed them to fools, and. We don't care. We don't care. You know, don't give more honor to the rich man who enters into your home. But if you see the rich man who enters into the church, if you see them as part of like the mountain mandate and they're the mountain takers, and it seems to me that it's going to create potential um, um, problems in, in the way that the church looks at the church and the way that we look at each other as Christians because we're seeing that person as achieving this, this, this mandate. The benefit of this, there's a good side to it as well, which is that you just have Christians who are intentional about trying to like put their Christianity into wherever they are. And that's a good thing, whether it's in business or in government or whatever, whether not, they're trying to treat, create a theocracy, but they're trying to, to like, I want to see my Christian commitments and my commitment to Jesus impacting the people around me. And if I have influence, I want to use that for the Lord. That's a positive thing. So yeah, those are my answers. It's extra biblical. It has a potential problems and it has some positives that come with it. And so, um, can we do some of the same stuff without the negatives by just ignoring the phrase seven mountain mandate? Interestingly enough, <clears throat> the passion translation, um, put seven mountains in the book of Psalms, Where it didn't belong, I I don't know if he's taken it out because he's been revising it here and there. Um, Maybe he took it out, but but yeah, because he was trying to embed this theology into (laughs) places where it doesn't occur in scripture. Um, That's weird. Okay, Richard Z ninety eight says, should we also or should we always see new souls coming to Christ as a sign slash indicator that the Lord was with us in a particular event, service, or missions field? um that's such a good question and i'll just say this i i think people are going to do this what no matter what my answer is like inevitably we're going you know you go on a mission trip and like a bunch of people get saved you're going to say wow god was really with us and no matter what i say now if you go on a mission trip and nobody receives the lord you're going to struggle with whether or not that was a successful trip i don't think that struggle is ever going to change um I don't think that's going to I don't think anything I say is going to change that Um, because there's something true about seeing a bunch of people get saved where you're like, God was obviously working in a powerful way, but where it seems to go wrong is when we think if nobody gets saved, if nobody gives their life to Christ, if the church isn't growing, then, then there must be something wrong with me and the way I'm, I'm doing my thing for that. I mean, I look at like Jeremiah in scripture. Jeremiah is like the prophet nobody listened to, who felt like his ministry, it seems to me. He felt like he just wasn't having much of an impact. And he preached and preached and preached. And and yet God was using him mightily and powerfully and continually, even after he died. Jesus, when he went to Nazareth, says he couldn't do many miracles there. And he was rejected. They mocked and ridiculed him and they chased him away. Like the, the Pharisees rejected him. Now, we know the story, so we never would think Jesus did something wrong or he failed in some fashion, right? But but if it was you, or maybe I'll make a, a, an easier example is Paul. Paul the apostle goes into the synagogue and he's, and he's like, I got to tell my my, my brothers and, and, and sisters of Israel, I got to tell the, son, the sons and daughters of Abraham about the Messiah who has come. He's risen from the dead. And they're like, we hate you, Paul. We want to kill you. And they, they not only did they reject Paul, but they sent people who followed him around to cause him problems. There was a point where Paul goes to the synagogue to preach, and at the end of it, he shakes the dust off his feet, and he goes, you know what, from now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now, if Paul was writing his missions letter to his mission supporters, and he goes, yeah, we got chased out of the synagogue. <laughs> they don't, we're not going to go to them anymore. It seems like that gods just kind of like closed the door. Like... He wouldn't have as much support. I'm just saying that we just tend to look at the results that way. And I don't think scripture does. I think that God tests us based on faithfulness. And the only question I have is, was I faithful and godly? And that's a totally different question because at the end of a mission trip, at the end of like outreaching to family or friends, was I faithful and was I Christ-like? And if the answer is yes, then that was a success in my obedience to Christ. And any blessings or hardships or failures... I don't take credit for. I was faithful, let the chips fall where they may. That I think is a healthy perspective, but it's not as exciting as, you know, the other side. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, hopefully it helps somebody. <clears throat> Alicia says, is it better to attend a church you disagree with in theology with, rather than not attending at all? And I think the answer is probably better to attend. It just depends on the degree. Um, so, you know, some heresies are like so, some wrong teachings, bad theology is so bad that I can't fellowship there. I can't even go there. I can't just go there and disagree with them on that issue. I just can't go there. Um, my current thinking on this as, as you know, in, in my many great years of wisdom and, and my, I've, I've, I've elevated to, you know, uh, guru wise status. I'm just kidding, by the way, I'm joking about myself because I'm not, I don't have that much experience in life, but, in what experience I've got, I, um, I really like when people can attend a church together, even though they don't agree with all the theology. But if you don't agree with the theology at its core, you're not even a church anymore, right? Like if you don't have the death and resurrection of Christ, the, the inspiration and trustworthiness of the scriptures, if you don't have the call to, uh, to turn from worldliness, to follow Jesus and holiness, if you don't have those elements, then you, you, you're not even really a church, right? So it depends on what you mean by disagree with the theology. Like if you disagree with their stance on end times or on baptism method, right? Like sprinkling and, or dunking, right? Like if, if you, I, I just don't see a reason to leave a church over that necessarily. So yeah, those are my thoughts on that. Depends on how extreme it is. It's so important that we're in fellowship as Christians. Um, I know I need it. It's not good for me, you know, if I'm not. And, um, and it's not just about me. It's about us honoring Christ. Jesus saved you and put you into a body like he did that. You know how parents love to see their kids getting along? I think there's a certain joy that God has when he sees us in fellowship with other Christians, even though we don't naturally get along that much. (laughs) There's like a joy that we bring to God that it's not just about me. Uh, Number 18, Taste Remains has a question. I want my music to glorify God. When I make music with computer though, I worry a lot about sources of my inspiration, any tips or principles to ensure not being influenced by ungodly sources. Um, Let me suggest this. I mean, I'm a musician as well. Okay. I'm not a great musician, (laughs) but I'm some kind of musician as well. And, um, uh, in my mind, I would want to separate the musical um, skills and novelties and ideas you're getting from from a source versus the spiritual baggage that those things sometimes carry. And I kind of would want to separate those a little bit. And so um, like back in the 90s, it was like every worship team was, was like, I want to try to sound like you too. I want to sound like you too. And you too was... I mean, the whole debate was like, is Bono really Christian and all this kind of thing? And it can be a little weird because you're like debating about a real person who has real views and we're all just publicly talking about them. It can feel just like gossip at that point. But but it, to, say, to say just conservatively, there's at least, there was some questionable things going on there that didn't seem like there was like a real commitment to scripture, okay? To, to the biblical truth, at least that much with, with you too. And so people were like, hey, you know, you want to be influenced by you too, but are you are you going to then import some of this sort of mystic stuff that we see in their music as well? Even though some of the stuff seemed like it really honored Jesus. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't listen to hardly any music. I could not even name five U2 songs. So forgive me if I'm getting some of the details here wrong. Um, I know one of their songs is very much honoring to Christ and other stuff. I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, so it seemed like a mixed bag. So what I'm going to suggest is you, are you able to borrow musical elements without the corresponding weirdness that might be embedded in some of the music. And in some genres, um, pride and rage seem to be, or rage, seem to be like embedded in the music, as in the musical beats and styles are meant to invoke these senses, these feelings. And, you know, you want to make sure that if you, even if you did take inspiration from them, you're not not reproducing that problem. And so I, I think that it's just about a wisdom issue Um, I I do think it's okay for you to to look to some of these other sources of people who were successful and skillful musicians and learn and grow from them. I don't think we have to cut them off. I think that you just have to have a a real line in in the ground that says, oh, but, but here's where they fall short of following Christ. And I'm not going to borrow that (laughs) in any way. Billy Paul says, what are the biblical parameters for altars in the home? Are they still biblical? Um, So in ancient Israel, you know, the it was important that they did not worship in random locations. When when God gave the law, they were always the temple was the centerpiece of where worship took place. And that's not to say they never made an altar and offered in any way anywhere else, but it was important that they didn't have these sort of like constant they didn't have a replacement for the temple and this happened when the when the kingdom divided when north and south divided they built like a new altar and it was kind of a replacement and i think that there's there's something we're getting at here which is a potential of having a physical altar is that it can become a replacement for another more important one <laughs> do you understand what i'm saying like and and with new testament times it seems very different um in the new testament we're not replacing the temple when we have an altar, because we don't use the temple, the old school temple, right? You are the temple. And so when two or three are gathered in his name, he's there in our midst. We are the temple of the spirit. We are worshiping. We are all kings and priests. And so when we have an altar, I fear that what this says about us is that something is lacking in the temple that he has made us. And I don't know of any New Testament examples of altars in the home of any kind, Um, what, what it seems would happen was the, the Jews would, would slowly realize like, no, we've, we've, we are now in the new covenant and we have the greater temple. Um, the non-Jews would get rid of their altars and they would worship the Lord in spirit. Jesus predicted this in John four. Let me give you an example. So in John four, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and there's this whole debate. Remember I told you the Northern kingdom, they had like their own, altar well the Sumerians had their own like you know here's where the center of everything is not Jerusalem and so there was a debate over where the right place to worship God was and so um, so she says to Jesus sir I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship Jesus said to her women woman believe me The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Wait, it's not going to be at any location? Well, no, no, it's not going to be location-based, right? It's not about where's the proper space, place, or altar. You worship what you do not know. We worship, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Um, Altars, it seems to me, are, are <clears throat> uh, unnecessary for Christians because they are conduits of some kind because they, they represent distance between you and God and the altar is the way to draw near. And so when you add icons and you add images on top of that altar, I think it makes it even more complicated and, and challenging and questionable. So I, I think that we don't see that. I think this is post uh, New Testament. It started popping up a lot and people do it, but I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it, man. I'm the temple. Why am I going to this altar? Number 20. Last question for today is from Gurlette, who says, I'm very eager to have a relationship with Jesus. However, I still have doubts about the truth of Christianity. And I don't have full certainty. However, people believe their mom loves them. Advice. Wait, I do not understand that last sentence. I'm going to read your question again. I'm very eager to have a relationship with Jesus. However, I still have doubts about the truth of Christianity and I don't have full certainty. However, people believe that their mom loves them. Advice. Maybe your example is everyone thinks their mom loves them, but maybe their mom doesn't. I, I'm not sure how that last sentence fits, you know, fits into the question. So if, I, might, I might skip that just to not get you wrong. Um, But you have an eagerness to know Jesus and have a relationship with him, but you still have doubts about whether it's actually true. You don't have full certainty. Um, This has been something that I've, I've said many times and not everyone agrees with me, okay? But I think scripture does, I think, I believe it does, is that full certainty, total, I have total certainty and there's no doubt in any fiber of my being about the truth of Christianity, that that is good, but not required. I just don't think it's required. I think that there are times where we can doubt and we are not cast out. We're not cast out, right? I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it did. There's times where we can doubt and we are not cast out. <laughs> that's, that's very true. And so, um, scripture seems to indicate this too, because there's times where, where it talks about people who are like, um, um. They're, they're, they're rejected because they're unbelieving and their unbelief comes out because of their behaviors. And it's like, get out of here. You know, they're, they're like, you're not really part of us. First John says that they went out from among us because they weren't really from us. They weren't really part of us. But then there are other people like the man I spoke of earlier who came to Jesus and says, you know, can you heal my son? He's got this epileptic demonic problem. And Jesus is like, Hey, if you believe anything's possible. And he goes, I believe help my unbelief. Jesus heals the man's son. What is that? If it's not. Jesus's affirmation that you saying, I believe Lord help my own belief that that can be acceptable to him because he considered that the choice to believe. Um, I think that Jude talks a little bit about this at the very end of Jude, Jude, there's only one chapter. So it's Jude 22 verse 22. Um, on some have compassion making a distinction, but others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. I think that this, this first group, on some have compassion, make a distinction, are the people that are like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And for them, I just want to give them tons of compassion. That's enough. That's enough. You don't even have to fix all these lingering doubts in your head. You have to just simply choose to trust in Christ. Here's the thing I don't understand. Here's another thing I don't understand. Uh, These things cause me to have some kind of psychological doubts, but I choose to trust you. Relationally, I choose to believe you. Then I want to have compassion on you. Right, others say with fear. These are the people I think who are—they're um, not just going with these intellectual doubts, but they're actually engaging in, in in radical sins. Right, this is sinful, and and they need to be pulled out of that fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh, or whatever it is that they're doing that's wrong. So I think Scripture gives you that. I also think the Book of Psalms might be helpful for you, uh, girlette, <clears throat> because. Psalms sometimes sits in this place. The author of the psalm will be in this place where you can see the conflicting ideas, right? Where they're like, Lord, how, how long, how long do I cry out to you? And then it goes, yet yeah, God is good to Israel. And notice how the book of Psalms, if you read a verse, you'll get, you'll misunderstand the Psalms. But if you read the chapters, a whole chapter, you'll see the competing ideas of the psalmist. Like, Lord, I, I'm struggling here. Why? How long is it? How long is my enemy going to overcome me? How long is this struggle going to be going on? And then at the end, it's like, Yet I will trust the Lord. There's the decision. Yet I will trust God. Yet I will believe in him. Yet I will rest in his goodness. God, surely God is good. God is good to Israel. Um, I will yet hope in him. So there's these Psalms where it's like just a promise, like I'm still going to trust in you. And I think that, that from what your your brief description of your situation, that seems to be you. And I think that God receives you. And I think that that act of I trust you, Lord, even though I have these doubts is... is A precious thing because it's the decision to believe in the midst of challenges. Um but you know that in spite of the things you're that have you doubting, you you have good enough reason to still trust God in spite of that. I struggle with that, but I still trust in him. I think that's a healthy thing to do and um yeah. So I hope that helps you guys. I'm gonna be teaching soon here at the end of February in a conference in um, palm springs and you guys are welcome to come if you like there's a link in the video description down below um this uh, desert apologetics is the group that's putting it on and it's like a more focused on like the next generation like how to reach the next generation using apologetics and stuff but i'm going to be there natasha crane's going to be there and sean mcdowell's going to be there and craig hazen i believe is going to be there and i don't know who else you might be there <laughs> and um Anyway, it'll it'll be a two day event and it's also going to be online. You can watch it online and there'll be links down below where you could get like a ticket to watch it online. As far as my part, the things I'll share there, I'll also be uploading those onto my YouTube channel. But if you want to catch everybody else's stuff or if you want to be there in person, then you got the links. That's it. All right. I will see you guys next week. And, um, yeah, there was something I was thinking about telling you about, but all the skip just to, just to irritate you. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not just for that reason, but all right. I'll see you guys um, next Friday at 1 p.m. Every week we do this, taking your questions, trying to learn to think biblically about everything. And the serpent seed doctrine is totally bunk.